Hello, I'm Neil Bhatia, a research associate in the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. And welcome to this podcast episode on Chinese economic coercion and potential U.S. foreign policy responses. In recent months, this topic has become very relevant as the tensions over trade and economic issues between Washington and Beijing have escalated, and U.S. companies like American Airlines and The Gap have found themselves the targets of many of these measures. I'm joined today by Elizabeth Rosenberg, Senior Fellow and Director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at CNAS, Peter Harrell, Adjunct Senior Fellow in the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at CNAS, and Eduardo Saravalli, Researcher in the Energy, Economics, and Security Program. Liz, Peter, and Eduardo are the co-authors of the forthcoming CNAS report on Chinese course of economic measures. Peter, I wanted to start with you. Can you explain to the listeners what exactly Chinese economic coercion is? Where it fits into China's overall strategy and why it matters to the U.S. Well, Neil, thank you very much for uh, hosting us here today for this podcast, and thanks to all of you listening. Uh, for a number of years, uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to the way in which China uses trade and investment tools to build its relationships uh, around the world. Uh, for example, with the Belt and Road Initiative, and even prior to that. Uh, with a variety of strategic deals China engaged in in Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, over the last uh, seven or eight years, however, we've seen a, a real um, uh, emergence of a sharper side of China's economic statecraft, where China is engaging in coercive uh, economic measures to achieve foreign policy uh, outcomes. So, you know, we've seen China um, lean on uh, individual companies to try to get them to change their policies on issues like Taiwan or Tibet. We've seen China. Uh, engage in um, various kinds of boycotts and uh, uh, trade slowdowns uh, with target countries such as South Korea and Philippine and the Philippines in order to change their those countries' um, foreign policy activities. I think this is something we're likely to see China engage in more of uh, over the years uh, to come, uh, primarily uh, because we've seen China take an overall much more assertive uh, foreign policy posture under President Xi, Xi Jinping, uh, and also because uh, obviously China's been growing uh, very quickly. Uh, you know, even in this sort of slower Chinese growth period, we're talking about 6% growth per year, uh, which means China's economic clout uh, is growing every year, giving China greater uh, ability uh, to use its economic clout in order to achieve uh, foreign policy uh, outcomes. Uh, obviously, other countries have, uh, have done uh, similar kinds of things. The U.S. Uh, has engaged in sanctions for a great number of years, but, but seeing a uh, near-rival uh, economy uh, do this obviously has very significant implications for the U.S. and our allies. Liz, Peter's given us an overview of the phenomenon. I was wondering if you could drill down more into the topic. Uh, what are some of the specific tools that Beijing uses when it wants to coerce a target country? And what are some of the specific cases that you all have looked at in the report itself? Well, thanks, Neil. For this kind of economic coercion, this targeted economic coercion by China, there are a number of different strategies that Beijing and Chinese uh, government apparatus appears to be using. Uh, through its own private sector, through its own uh, businesses and uh, its economic muscles. They include things like restrictions on imports and exports, the use of popular boycotts, a, a tool used in other scenarios as well, 
restrictions on tourism and package tourism, that is sending Chinese tourists out to um, other locations internationally, including in countries that's near abroad, investment restrictions, sometimes restrictions on specific companies operating inside China or outside of China, and informal pressure on some of these specific companies in a less uh, concerted or uh, formal manner. So not necessarily to cripple and close these companies, uh, but to influence their activities. The cases that we've looked at over the last decade, there's uh, nine primary ones we're taking, we've taken a look at uh, for the purposes of our research and uh, that will be documented in a report uh, that we are shortly to release. And there are other cases that people may point to that bear uh, the hallmarks of the same tools used uh, or that uh, bear relevance to some of the same countries targeted, but the nine cases we've looked at include uh, uh, an incident of targeting of um, Japan, specifically the restriction of rare earth uh, uh, minerals exported to Japan. They were held at port. This followed um, a dust-up and the uh, dispute over um, a set of island chains. Uh, in 2010, we looked at another case from 2010 with uh, China targeting Norwegian salmon imports following the award of the Nobel Prize to Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobao. There are other cases. Uh, most, one of the most recent ones is the case in South Korea after its deployment of the THAAD missile defense system. Uh, there were a series of things that China did uh, to restrict package tourism to South Korea, restricting imports from South Korea into China of K-pop and cosmetics. China essentially forced the majority of the South Korean chain latte supermarkets, or department stores rather, in China to close based on uh, safety, purported safety concerns. And there's also a popular boycott of uh, South Korean cars associated with that. We also looked at cases from Taiwan, Australia, Mongolia, the Philippines, and a couple of cases, Iran and North Korea, in which China participated with other international uh, partners in exerting economic coercion on those targets. So a multilateral case as opposed to most of the rest of ours, which are unilateral. Eduardo, as the ongoing Trump administration negotiations with Beijing suggests, China and the United States have many open issues of negotiation from trade and investment, to what to do with North Korea's nuclear program. And in each case, both sides adopt different strategies, sometimes more conciliatory and sometimes less so. Uh, when does China choose to use or not use uh, economic coercion, as the case may be? Thank you, Neil. I think I would say two things about when China chooses to use it or not. As Liz mentioned, we study both multilateral and unilateral cases. So in multilateral cases, China tends to use coercion as part of a broader framework, and it tends to do this to enforce international norms, or rather non-proliferation, for example, in the case of North Korea. When it's using its unilateral coercion, which is the bulk of the cases we study, China was using it in service of very specific goals that are China-specific. So for example, it used it to advance its territorial claims in the case Liz mentioned, say in Japan, it was over a disputed island chain. Same thing in the Philippines, even in Mongolia and Taiwan, there are territorial claims because they see, uh, say, the Dalai Lama visited Mongolia in 2016, and the, China considers him a separatist leader, and so it used coercion as a way to reinforce its claim over Tibet. The second 
major category I would classify as sovereignty issues. So for example, in the Norway case, we mentioned uh, China saw the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize as a way of meddling in Chinese domestic politics and thus wanted to punish Norway for this. Or even in the Korea case over THAAD, China saw unjustly or incorrectly rather the THAAD system as a way of peering into China as a way of uh, limiting its sovereignty over its territory. There are indications, however, that China may be expanding its scenarios in which it would use coercion. So one of the cases Liz mentioned to was this is this developing case in the growing tension between China and Australia. In this case, there is no specific catalyst uh, that would fall under these interests. Rather, China is reacting to Australia's tightening of rules around foreign influence, specifically Chinese influence in its politics. And so there is the sense that China may start to cut off Chinese students studying abroad in Australia, which would be a severe blow to the country's economy, but wouldn't necessarily fall under traditional territorial or sovereignty interests. Liz, you previously worked at the U.S. Treasury Department on sanctions policy, which is one of the primary U.S. forms of economic coercion. Uh, how would you say China's methods differ from the ones that previous U.S. administrations have used? Well, it's a really good question, and it's important to uh, differentiate between how China appears to be using its uh, tactics of economic coercion and how the United States does. So for people who are accustomed to looking at how the United States imposes financial sanctions, as does the EU and other countries, it's inappropriate to uh, superimpose the same tactics or strategies or financial mechanisms onto what China is doing now. Uh, it doesn't bear the same hallmarks, and so uh, it should be understood as its own phenomenon. So to be specific, some of the methods that China uses are uh, they're primarily informal. Uh, they're, they, they're not pursuant to a declared policy enshrined in law and regulation uh, like the United States or like Europe do when they impose sanctions. There's no blacklist that's publicly uh, displayed or that's published for the world to see. China often uses the facade of fire safety or food safety concerns or environmental concerns in order to go after um, the targets of its coercion and to impose these restrictions on imports and exports or um, pulling back package tourism, investment restrictions. And that's a, a really significant feature of what China is doing. It affords China a, a measure of deniability uh, for these activities and also flexibility to ramp up, ramp down, to climb down from this after the policy may have run its course uh, pursuant to what Chinese goals may have been, or there's a uh, appropriate juncture to shift um, the tools of statecraft to advance Chinese goals. Another important uh, method to call out here in how China pursues this economic coercion uh, is its, um, its focus primarily on uh, liberal uh, democratic countries uh, as a way to advance policy concerns toward them, whereas uh, what we see in uh, the United States and the EU and some European member states and other countries is the use of economic coercion most commonly associated with going after what they might call rogue regimes or 
illiberal, undemocratic states. So it's, uh, it's under, it appears to be understood differently as a tool of statecraft and a way of engaging a partner or adversary uh, for China than it has been, than some of these tools have been used uh, by the United States. One last thing I'll just say is that in those instances of multilateral economic coercion, the Iran and the North Korea cases, there are some similarities for how China approaches the issue to how other UN member states approach the issues. These were multilateral examples uh, organized by United Nations Security Council, so incumbent upon all member states. China did in those instances uh, issue circulars, so there was some written documentation for uh, the requirements to pull back from certain activities prohibited by the UN. And so that's an important exception when you're thinking about how China participates with other countries in this economic coercion, which is uh, perhaps a, a more modest or uh, marginal use of these tools compared to this array of other instances where China is exerting economic coercion. Eduardo, we noted at the outset that the phenomenon of Chinese economic coercion has recently come into the spotlight as many U.S. companies have found themselves targeted. And I was hoping you could describe more in detail what has been occurring even within the past few weeks. Yes, certainly. Thank you, Neil. I think I would say just to preface it that China has a track record of targeting individual companies as a way to further its political objectives. So it has a long-standing conduct against the Taiwanese companies in order to get them to, to not support pro-independence goals. In the recent months, though, however, larger and more international, particularly U.S. and European companies, have come under fire. So, for example, Marriott, the Marriott Hotel chain came under fire for a survey where it listed Tibet as a in separate country and then even had to fire a social media manager for unwittingly liking a pro-Tibet tweet. In recent months, though, there really has been an escalation. So at the end of the April, the Chinese Civil Aviation Administration released a circular to 36 international airlines warning them not to support so-called separatist aims, which would be listing Macau, Hong Kong, and Taiwan as separate entities. In response, the Trump administration released an actually pretty strong statement calling out China's political correctness and calling this conduct Orwellian nonsense, and especially putting highlighting the coercing and threatening maneuvers from China. However, it is unclear how this situation will actually play out because from an individual company standpoint, there is a strong incentive to comply. So an AP investigation actually found that of these 20, 36 companies, 20 have already complied with the Chinese message. And this fits into a broader problem, as Peter alluded to, to the size of the Chinese market. So more, the more and more China's cloud grows, more uh, China will be able to exert greater pressure. For example, in five years, China will be the world's largest airline market. And so there is a strong incentive for individual companies to comply. And so the situation is still developing, but we can see China definitely growing in boldness and targeting major international companies. In fact, even BA and Lufthansa have already complied. So Peter, to close this out, I was wondering if you could uh, amplify on some of the things that Wardo was saying about the Trump administration and potential U.S. responses to Chinese economic coercion. What can policymakers here do to respond to this danger, and what are some of the biggest challenges to developing an effective and coordinated response? 
So I think there are, there are broadly speaking, a um, couple of areas where the Trump administration should be thinking about a response. Uh, Eduardo alluded to the, the first thing uh, that the Trump administration is already doing and should do more of, uh, which is really calling out uh, this behavior. Uh, and a part of calling out this behavior is studying it more, um, figuring out exactly uh, when and where the Chinese uh, are doing this. I mean, some of the cases have been in the news, uh, like the airline cases, Marriott Hotel cases, some of the national cases that we studied have been in the news. But we're likely to see a much more uh, systematic and aggressive approach by China to implementing these measures in the years ahead, and that's going to require a fair amount of uh, study uh, and public uh, calling out uh, by the Trump administration. I think the second area where the Trump administration uh, and Congress, uh, frankly, should be thinking about uh, responses uh, is in the area of trade policy. Uh, obviously, the Trump administration has a lot on its plate right now uh, with respect to trade policy in China and in uh, Asia, and I think uh, it's important to be realistic about the variety of issues on the trade policy uh, plate, but certainly as the Trump administration uh, gets into negotiations, trade negotiations with U.S. allies in Asia uh, and around the world, it needs to be thinking about ways to use uh, trade policy to strengthen the resilience of countries like South Korea and Japan and Taiwan uh, and Australia to China's uh, economic coercion to, to make sure that they feel, as U.S. allies, they can stand up uh, to this kind of uh, bullying. Uh, I also think there's some things uh, the Trump administration can do uh, domestically uh, to help U.S. companies uh, that are bolstered, uh, are affected by this kind of uh, bullying. I think that, you know, as, as Eduardo said, um, calling it out is a good start. I mean, trying to give a little bit of rhetorical uh, backing uh, to companies that uh, want to resist uh, China's bullying. That's a place to start. Uh, but I also think Congress and the Trump administration need to be looking for, you know, concrete ideas of ways that they could support uh, companies that are affected uh, by Chinese bullying, you know, whether that's setting up some kind of scheme to help provide some compensation uh, to companies uh, that lose uh, revenue as a result of China's uh, bullying or, or, or other kinds of measures to help companies. That's something that both uh, Congress uh, and the administration should be looking at. Uh, and then I'd also say, um, a final area to, to think about is um, uh, the area of anti-boycott uh, laws. The U.S. Uh, enacted an anti-boycott law back in the 1970s uh, to help resist the Arab uh, embargo of Israel. Uh, and I think Congress should, uh, should think carefully, it's a complicated issue, but Congress should think carefully about uh, ways to modernize uh, those kind of laws to help, help U.S. companies better stand up uh, to Chinese uh, bullying. Because uh, as I said at the beginning, I think the reality is the U.S. and our allies are only going to face more of this uh, in the years ahead. Uh, whether it is at the company level, the way uh, Eduardo uh, was describing uh, with companies being affected, U.S. companies, large U.S. companies being affected, or whether it's uh, more national cases of the kind Liz had talked about, you know, Philippines and Japan and South Korea and the other cases we studied, we're going to see more of this. Um, it is going to be a reality of China's foreign policy over the years to come. Uh, and if we don't want it to succeed, if we as the United States uh, policymakers don't want it to succeed, we're going to have to get organized to actually stand up for it. Well, thank you so much, Peter and Liz and Eduardo for joining us today.